go to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, John a 1008 in my Bible, that's the page number. And we're going to look at chapter 2, and we're working our way through this uh, under the idea that uh, listening to some of the conversations and uh, some of the discussions uh, that Jesus had uh, with people uh, can be very instructive to us, I think, and help us. I, I was talking to somebody the other day, I said, I'd just like to sometimes... Uh, sit down with Jesus and have a conversation and say, why did you do this? You know, or have a conversation with him like these people did to have it you know, kind of face-to-face. And one of these days, the, the Lord willing, we'll be able to have that kind of opportunity. Uh, but in this, uh, this topic of conversations, uh, as you know, uh, there are all kinds of different levels of conversation. I was uh, thinking about all the ways that we communicate in conversation, if you want to call it that. Uh, today, we have Twitter. Anybody uh, working on Twitter? I, I, okay. <laughs> I'm going to the young marriage next. <laughs> uh, uh, Facebook, you know, you hear about that? Facebook, I, I had somebody this morning on my Twitter account. Uh, I'm all a Twitter uh, because I've got a guy following me now that's kind of important. And uh, so uh, he hasn't been to Israel, but he's a pretty important guy. Uh, uh, Tumblr, I don't know if you've heard of that. Tumblr, there, there are all these sites where you can communicate back and forth with people. Google Instant, uh, there are all kinds of things like this. And I, I guess uh, one of the, an email and all those kind of things. And with increased ability to communicate, I still wonder how many of us are having real conversations, you know, right? I mean, when you go to Twitter, you can only do, what, 144 characters? And I predicted one day, I'll not tell you what it is, but I predicted to Becky one day, one day you will see this on Twitter, I promise you, and I'm not repeating it. Uh, but uh, just, you know, because who cares about that for you? Uh, but more and more technology, more and more opportunities, if you will, to have conversation, but I sometimes uh, wonder about it. I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad and I had several conversations, <laughs> didn't you, <clears throat> with your dad? You know, my dad would call me into the house and say, son, uh, I thought I told you guys not to run in the house, and this lamp is broken. And I would say, what lamp? A lamp is broken? He'd say, now, I told you boys not to run. And I want to know, did you, did you break that lamp? And I'd say, you mean you want to know if we broke the lamp? Do you, you want to know if we were running? Well, Dad, now, uh, Dad, let me, uh, uh, Dad the, the lamp, you're talking about that one over there, right? That lamp over there? You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, after a while, just, I kept saying, now, Dad, I, I'm, now, Dad I'm going to tell you. I'm going I'm to tell you. And he kept saying, tell me what happened. Conversations, they, they're at all different kind of levels. And we learn uh, from each other about our, our, learn things about each other from our conversations. And we learn about people. In John chapter 2, uh, there's this uh, conversation that Jesus had. And we talked about it last week and uh, kind of got into it. I, I felt like there's some material that I've got to finish out. Uh, this week uh, to uh, get the full uh, conversation covered. But in John chapter 2, we have that incident of Jesus cleansing the temple. And we recorded last week and talked about uh, some issues about the timing of this. You may know that in this gospel, the cleansing of the temple begins at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in the other gospels, it's at the end. And we discussed that. What, what is that? How do we make a sense of that? And you want to listen to that, you can. Uh, but Jesus, uh, in this particular uh, event... Uh, is cleansing the temple and uh, what we learn about that in the temple. You can again listen to some of that uh, that we uh, discussed last week. Uh, what do we learn? Uh, let, me, let me back up here. Th- this Mac is driving me. Anybody still not a fan of Mac like me? Come on, I, I know Daryl wants my, my computer back. 
Yeah, I could. That's right. Now, the reason I want to look at this is because when Jesus comes to the temple and does this uh, uh, cleansing, if you will, or this uh, correction, it says here in verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us of the authority that you're doing these things? In other words, tell us why you think you can do this, because this is a fairly uh, radical uh, act by Jesus, and we, we looked at some of that. And then you'll notice here, uh, but Jesus, uh, or in chapter, uh, verse 23 of the same chapter, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs. So the religious leaders want a sign, and the regular people believe that he has done a sign, and they believe him. We're, we're going to look at that kind of, kind of contrast. That what I see here in this passage, we looked at some of that last week, is that in the cleansing of the temple, there's a concern that Jesus has. Now, we talked some about that last week, about some of the ways that people were treated and the way that uh, religion had kind of been commercialized. Of course, that, that's never happened ever, has it? No. Religion's never gotten commercialized. There, there's never been a sense in which, if you will, uh, that people have, have uh, used their authority and power uh, to exclude people and to, to, uh, to uh, uh, cause people to not feel apart. And so as I looked at this and seeing this where Jesus did this, and I want to show you some pictures here in a second, but Jesus had a concern here as to why he cleansed this temple. And it's because of this. Jesus, it appears, has this interest in in inclusion versus exclusion. Inclusion versus exclusion. I said to you last week uh, that the other one was that Jesus had a concern. His concern was that we not be mechanical in our practice of following him, but personal. And Chris and I were talking about that earlier, that, that many of us sometimes, we, we, have a tr- we have a difficulty because our relationship with God is more mechanical than personal. Well, I see in this cleansing, if you will, of, Jesus, of the temple, Jesus also has this concern about inclusion versus exclusion. You say, well, Cliff, where do you see that uh, in the passage? Let me, let me show you here a picture here first. This is a mock-up of the temple, obviously. and We looked at this last week. And this temple uh, is built here. It took uh, 40-something years for Herod to get it finished. These colonnades here are where uh, this outer area is where Jesus is cleansing or uh, knocking the money changers' tables over and and, uh, driving the cattle herders out. Because in this area here and around over here and in front of here is called the court of the women and the Gentiles. That's the court of the women and the Gentiles. That's where this is all going on. Oh, over here? Okay. Oh, I love... See, they're needing some technology. Watch this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, over here and over there. Very helpful. See? See? How about that? Technology? can even do it like this. Uh, that this is the court of the Gentiles here and women. Now, it's the only place that they can be. And what's going on is that in the midst of this area, the only place they can be, where the, where the Gentiles and women included... The money changing, all of the, if you will, all of the selling and loudness and commotion of selling these animals is going on. And what seems to me to be happening is that Jesus is terribly concerned at this point that there are people who the only place they can be, they're now being excluded. Instead of it being a place where they can come and gather, I'll show you here in a minute, they can come and gather here to worship or even to hear What's going on? Now they're barred from it. It's been taken over, if you will, by the religious leaders. And part of that is this. Uh, 
It's this idea that the divine presence never leaves this area. When Jesus comes into this particular area of the temple, he's in an area that the Jewish people believe that God's presence never leaves, ever. I took this picture when we were there. It's actually that, that's right there uh, on the side of the western wall where the temple uh, wall was at one point. That uh, Jesus is in an area where the Jews believe that the divine presence never leaves. And as a consequence, they've, if you will, caused problems for people who want to be there but can't get any closer than the outer area. Now I'll show you this here as well. I showed you this last week. There is this uh, stone that has been found in the excavation of Jerusalem area. That this stone here was on that outer wall that no Gentile, specifically it says. No, I'll, I'll, read, I'll show you here. It, it reads this. No foreigner is to go on the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good sign right there. You go, you know, I think I'll read that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, that, that this area where the Jews or where the Gentiles are and the women are, this is as far as they can go. They can't go any further toward the temple area. And it seems to me that Jesus is concerned about inclusion Versus exclusion. In other words, it's like the Jewish leaders think, well, it's just the Gentile court. Well, it's just the, it's just the women's court. D- don't worry about that. You know, we, when we're an insider, we're not too much worried about the what? Outsider. And it's, it's pretty dangerous being an insider, actually, isn't it? Because when you're an insider, you never are concerned about what's going on with the outsider. I'm, I'm always interested in when people are talking and it... Sounds like, well, you're on the inside, so it doesn't sound like you are too very concerned about the people on the outside. That happens in church sometimes, doesn't it? Happens in our culture all around. So Jesus is concerned about this because in the only area, the only area that the Gentiles and the women have to worship and to come has been taken over. One, one writer using this uh, this. Uh, this thing right here, this, this stone uh, statement was on a wall, on a wall that separated them. And I, I don't know if you uh, ever remembered this, but Paul, if you're interested, in one of the passages in Ephesians 2.14 said this, that Jesus broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. You know what? That was an actual wall. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 Paul makes the statement that Jesus is breaking down the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile. Now, the reason I want to talk about that is this, uh, this idea here uh, in, if you will, what's going on in in this life. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago, and and I'm still kind of working on this, this idea. I think that this action of Jesus indicates that Jesus was concerned for the outsider. That, that Jesus was concerned for the foreigner. <laughs> Jesus was concerned for the disenfranchised. Jesus was concerned about those who had no power or no ability and was willing and desirous that there be this understanding, there needs to be a place for people who are on the outside. As I was reflecting on that, <clears throat> get to thinking, you may, <clears throat> may know this, that these Gentiles who would gather outside the temple area. They were, they were called something. 
They, they were called something. Throughout the Roman Empire and around Jewish area, they were called God-fearers. God-fearers. And you know, uh, it's interesting because you have this distinction between the Jews who are able to go in the temple and the God-fearers who aren't. And if you read throughout the Bible, you'll realize that over and over again, there's this reference. I was trying to get to this last week because, you know, Marty preached on Cornelius. Remember last week in Acts 10? What was Cornelius called? A God-fearer. He was not a convert to Judaism. He had not been circumcised. He had not bought all the way into the Jewish religion. And yet he's called a God-fearer. And God does what to his prayer? Answers it. You know, I've got a pretty good idea. You know, we say, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. Really? (laughs) Are you sure? I mean, here's a God-fearer, Cornelius, who prays and God hears him. Throughout the Bible, we hear these statements made about these people. They're called God-fearers. They're not all the way in. They haven't believed everything. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't bought into all that the teaching of the Scripture is about. But they have a reverence for God. So here's what I'm going to say, and we'll move on, because this has gotten a hold of me, and of course you know if it gets a hold of me, you're going to have to listen to it. Sad, huh? I think that Jesus may be demonstrating to us here and throughout the New Testament that He is willing to let people belong before they believe or behave. I want you to hear that again. I think Jesus is demonstrating here the possibility that Jesus is willing to let people belong. In fact, Judaism allowed people to belong. They allowed them to be God-fearers. They didn't say you have to buy into the whole thing. They didn't say you didn't have to believe everything. They said if you're a God-fearer, you're welcome to belong here. Now, you can't go all the way in, right? You can't go into the temple of the men. But Jesus seems to be concerned that people are allowed to belong maybe before they believe everything or certainly before they behave correctly. Which I told you a couple of weeks ago is completely contrary to the model I grew up in. The model I grew up in in the church was you had to believe the right thing. And then you had to what? Behave the right way. And then you could belong, right? I I want to suggest to you that Jesus is cleaning this temple place up because the people who don't yet believe all the way and don't behave all the way are still able to belong, to be there, to have a place for them to listen and to hear and to understand. And perhaps because they belong, one day they might actually what? Believe. And hey, What miracle of miracle, if they belong long enough and they believe at some point, they might end up behaving. Let me ask you, can you and I accept people and allow them to belong who never behave? (laughs) Can we? Can we allow people? Can, Can we open our lives enough to say, if you never behave the way I think you should, then you can still belong. I mean, that's scary, isn't it? That's fr- it starts breaking, this starts breaking down what Jesus is concerned about, the inclusion versus exclusion. The I'm in, you're out, I'm part of this, you're not. I, I just want to ask you to consider that. This idea 
of God-fearers, of people who haven't made the trip all the way to faith that maybe we have, that seem to be allowed to have a place and a situation, if you will, with even the Jews back at the temple. Jesus seems to me to be pretty worked up that there now is no place for them to belong. No place for them to belong. And I'm just, I'm just trying to share with you what I'm thinking here. And you don't have to agree with it. You know, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across this community church, its elders, or leadership, you know. You don't have to believe it. But I'll ask you something. Do you think that followers of Jesus might be able to influence more people than we are if we allowed people first to belong? If we just said, you can belong. And in that process, they might actually see something that they finally can believe. Think about that. By belonging, they might see something enough that they would say, you know what, I believe that now. And then finally, if you will, at some point, to behave. I think that's the genius of Jesus. I think that's why he's trying to clean this place out. It's interesting that when you look at what he's doing here, he is making a statement here that those who have been pushed out and unable to belong have a place. Now here's the question I have for myself and for you. Do you require people to behave or believe before they can belong? Do we do that? Do you think Jesus allowed people to belong first? I'm inclined to believe that. When I look at the Gospels, I see a lot of people who are following Him who don't get it. I see a lot of people who follow Him for a while, and they finally then leave. You know, they obviously didn't believe at all. And they obviously didn't behave the whole way, but He allows them to be with them. And so I, I, I see in this episode, Jesus bringing a new model to us, or at least invoking the real model. It's belong, it's believe, and it's behave. Now, does that give you any indigestion like me a little bit? Does that give you a little indigestion, Rick? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Thanks. He's asking, you know, belong... Belong to the fellowship of the kingdom of God or the church, whatever. Rick, what I, what I think I'm saying is this, if I'm saying it at all. I think that the idea of belonging <clears throat> means that you have a place with me. I, it's, it's not up to me to decide who's in the kingdom and who's out. That's way above my pay grade, right? I mean, that just isn't my, I don't have that kind of pay grade. So it isn't for me to decide. It's for me to say, I'm open, my heart is open to you for you to belong. And we may even disagree on what we believe. We may even disagree on how we behave at times, right? But it's not up to me except for me to live my life as an open person. Because I think what I'm, what I'm real concerned about, what I think Jesus is real concerned about is, when we start setting up a lot of barriers, then it keeps going back to this, I'm in and you're out. And we can't belong to each other until you're in or I go out. Is that a muddy enough answer for you there? I I don't have one in this regard, Rick, to say that what does belonging mean in every area. I'm saying it means that my life and heart are open to people to say whether you ever believe what I believe, 
or whether you ever behave the way I behave, you belong. Now, Richard Rohr's had some influence here, but the idea of, of allowing people to belong first. Is, is that, am I helping any? I, I, yeah, he's asking, the, yeah, that's right. But Rick, it's pretty clear to me in the Gospels, there's a lot of people that don't understand him that are, he's allowing to follow him and be with him and sort of get it. And some of them never get it. <clears throat> but he doesn't ever seem to say, you can't follow around and you can't do this, you know. Now, I, I understand some of the statements that he made. I, I'm suggesting, though, that this is a, a matter where Jesus is trying to make room for people instead of, Instead of just making it where you can't even be with me till everything gets in line. Did he do that to you and me? I, I don't think he did that to me. I think he let me follow him as stupid as I was <clears throat> and as uninformed as I was in that regard. Gary? Yeah. Yes. Let me give you a story Jesus told about this that I think would at least give my position, I'm saying, I think is, Jesus tells the story of the tares and the wheat. Remember, tells the story of the kingdom of heaven like this, the man uh, sowed a field or put uh, seed in the field. While he was sleeping, excuse me, an enemy came and and, uh, put weeds. It's in this, I'm sorry, this is in Matthew 13. He puts weeds in the field. And they come to them and they say, Sir, somebody has sown tares into your good seed. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said, Do you want us to go and gather them up? He said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat. Allow them to grow together till the harvest. I mean, Jesus will figure this out one day. <clears throat> there will be a day when the correct judgment is made about who's in, who's out, who's belonging, who's not. But Jesus makes this statement. He said, this is the way the kingdom is. Allow them to grow together. Because if you don't, you'll tear up the wheat while you're trying to uproot it. I think what what I'm trying to say here is this, is that when we require people to have to believe everything and behave every way, that we not only tear them out, we tear other people out. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yes, God loves everybody. We're supposed to even mm-hmm. we're supposed to love everybody too. God yeah. loves people whether they're saved or not. Correct. We're supposed to love people whether right. they're saved or not. How yeah. are you distinguishing that command from what you're saying right here? How I'm distinguishing it is this is that Jesus said he's the only one qualified to make that distinction. My command is to love people. <clears throat> And to allow, I guess if you will hear, allow, if, I don't even like to use that word with me, allow them to grow and allow them to be there and see what happens. 
I, I, I just, in my life, I'll just say it this way. In my life, most of the judgments that I've made in my life, I've looked back on and thought I was completely wrong because I didn't have enough information. And what I'm saying is that this is the idea that Jesus is the only one qualified to make this distinction. And we, and we should be willing to say to people, I say to people, you know, what you're doing is not the way I would do it, and that's not, I, don't, I don't see it that way. But you know what? You're going to have to let Jesus handle this thing for you. I think we've got to get off if, or get out of, if you will, at some level, <clears throat> that we're having to tell people how they have to live instead of say, I want to, I want to show you how I'm living. If that makes sense to you, as we're understanding God's Word, and I want to show you how I'm living. If that makes sense to you, that you might do that. Instead of saying, until you start living like that, you, you can't belong. Does that make any sense at all? I, this, hey, listen, this is tough. It's tense. <clears throat> it's a lot e- listen, it's, isn't it easier to exclude than include? Isn't it easier? I mean, i got my rule and my list and my, and my, and my list. The problem is every church, every group's got a different list. Got a different way to exclude. Let me, let me, let me, yes, go ahead. Well, yeah, I, 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 I told Marty some time ago, I said, I think this is the Jesus model first, that he allowed people to follow him and belong with him. And it is also, I think, what has happened at crossings at times. I'll use a big word and I'm going to move off of this. This has just captured my thinking over the last several weeks. This idea of let people belong, then help them to, is this. This is what I call, what I think the scripture calls, incarnational ministry. Marty said over and over again, the problem is that so many people have not seen the truth of God lived out. The big word is incarnation. That when people see, does this thing really work? Can you really follow Jesus in these areas in this way? That when they begin to see it, they begin to believe it. And when they begin to believe it, they begin to behave that way. But if they're in, the, if they're in, the, if they're in a, a group of people that say, you're welcome, you're welcome to be here, stay here, investigate, look at it, think, see what you think about it, and then that begins that process. So I just see Jesus clear, clear in house. He, he is not going to allow the only place for these God-fearers to be to be cut off from them. He is unwilling to allow that kind of stuff to be happening. And I see in him, if you will, as he said, the zeal of God's house for people. 
is what's concerning. So we'll have to move on. Look here. Second one is prophecy is fulfilled. When I see this, when Jesus comes to the temple, <clears throat> when He comes to the temple, this would have to cause people to think about what had been said. When, when Jesus comes to the temple and cleanses it and clears it out, this would be a memory, if you will, of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Or as we say in East Texas, Malachi. Uh, that's the last book of the Old Testament. It's an old joke, but a good one. Look at that last, uh, uh, the last book of the, New, of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 1. When Jesus comes to the temple and does this and, cl- and cleans house, notice in chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before you. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will present the Lord offerings in righteousness. Listen, this this passage here and in Ezekiel 43 would have have had to have come to the mind of some people that this Jesus, this Messiah, this great teacher from Galilee has come to purify the temple. This would be a messianic statement. I'm here. Now, what's fascinating to me is this. When you think about this, where does Jesus start trying to make things right. The temple. I wrote in my notes, think about about this. Think of all the sinners in Galilee and Samaria. Think of all the wickedness that's going on in Israel. And Jesus starts with the religious group. Ouch. (laughs) That's my guys. That's my group. That this coming of the Messiah isn't, if you will, to the centered places, the, you know, the brothels or the, or the road houses or the, the other places like that where, where the Messiah comes to purify, where the Messiah comes to straighten things out is, if you will, I'll use this word, the church first. Anybody say amen or ouch? You know, right? You know, here Jesus fulfills this prophecy from Malachi And he begins with the religious group. Because when the religious group gets it wrong, where is there any hope? Where? You know what, I'll tell you a story. Some years ago I was uh, helping uh, preach at a church here in town that they were glad when I left, I think. (laughs) I remember preaching a sermon one uh, Sunday um, out of 1 uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And they did, it, I got, I, the, actually it uh, was a former president, of the, not the president right now. He's a wonderful person. He's a great guy. <laughs> uh, it was a former president who really took me to task over it. And of course I just, you know, smiled. In 1 Corinthians 5, you can go back and read it later, but Paul makes some statements about some activities that are going on, you know, and how that they need to make some corrections. And he says that in that context, 
that here's a, here's a believer, here's a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, you know, they're, they're in. They're not just a God-fearer. They're not just somebody investigating. They're a person who has, you know, they're all in according to their own confession. That Paul says, you're to judge him. And then he makes this fascinating statement. He says, what do I have, to, what, do, what do we have to do with judging the world? The answer in Greek is nothing. For we're to judge those who are inside the church. You, you know what I hear coming from pulpits all over America? How bad America is. You know I hear pulpits all over America talking about, about how bad those people are. You know what I don't hear? How are we doing? How are we doing? Now, I'm talking about people that are in. I'm talking about people that are, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about God-fears. I'm not talking about people that are just trying to begin to belong and start. I think it's a huge misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, we don't, we don't judge the world. God does that. We're to judge or to establish it in the church. But isn't it a fascinating human tendency that we start talking about all the sin in the world, we never talk about ourselves? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, we, we talk about whose sin? Those people, right? Remember? Watch out, that finger is, you know, it's, 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 it's very generic t- pointing. Dave. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> Dave is, you notice that? You know, where, where does Jesus come? As a fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. Where's the Messiah going to come and straighten things up? His own place. And you know, I, I tell you, when, when, when I think about all the things that are going on in our culture, I'm not, I'm not, a, a, you know, I'm not an escapist. I'm, I'm not saying let the world go to hell in a handbasket. I'm, I'm not that. But I'm telling you, I got, I got so much to deal with in my own life, I don't have time for a second job. <laughs> right? Really, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that I talk to students about and hear them about is that what, what the culture looks at and says, you guys don't even deal with your own stuff yet. You don't, you don't deal with your own stuff. Deal with your own stuff first, and then I might believe you. But isn't it easier, more convenient to talk about those people? Oh, you know those people, all they're doing in the politics. and You know all those people they're doing in the world. All those people, what they're doing downtown. That's, that's not what Jesus does. He starts at the temple. I got a good question I want to ask you is this. If Jesus were to come to Oklahoma City to purify, where would he go first? <laughs> you know, if he were to come to Oklahoma City today, and he says, I got a, I'm, a, I'm on a, a purification mission. <laughs> Where would he go first? My guess is he would go to the people who claim to be his followers. First. Not everybody else. Not all those people that are living that way. And I, I'm just, it's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 5 that, that he's going to, you know, he's, he's going to go to the house of God first. Okay, third. The tension of trust. What I see in this back in John 2. <clears throat> there's some tension here in trust. I'm fascinated when I look at this, uh, this uh, cleansing thing that's happening in the temple. That after Jesus did this, uh, the Jews say 
you know, show us another sign. And then it comes down here in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify him concerning men, for he himself knew what was in man. I told Becky last night we are getting ready to go to bed, and, and I said, uh, I may get in trouble tomorrow. <laughs> She goes, well, what else is new? <laughs> I said, I got a crazy idea. Crazy idea. Let me, let me lay it out for you here first of all uh, in this. And I didn't put on your, your, your hand up for a reason. What happens is, is the crowds, the crowds believe because of what they saw. So it says there in verse 23, the, the crowds believe because of what they saw. Interesting though, Jesus on his part was not believing, or the, the word there in, uh, in 24 is not trusting himself. Same word as believe, it's just a, a verbal form. That Jesus is believing by what he knows. Now there's some interesting grammatical issues here because when it says the crowd believed because what they had seen, the force of the verb means they believed at that moment, but there's no other belief after that. It's a particular form of a verb. They believed at that moment, didn't believe. There's no understanding or sense in which that they believed later. It was momentary. Where Jesus hears, he does not believe or trust himself to others because what he knows. What does he know? It says here he knows what's in human beings. Now I want to ask you this, and I'll wrap this up here in a moment. But do you believe and do I believe because of what we've seen? And as long as we keep seeing stuff, miracles, blessings, new cars, all that kind of stuff, we believe. Or do we keep believing because of what we know? You know, some of you have gone through terrible times. You've had cancer. You've had, you know, you're not seeing anything good. You're not seeing any wonderful thing happen. And you're, are, you know, are you going to be like the person, this group? They believe him momentarily. Because of what they see. Jesus' belief, or even his unbelief here in people, is because of what he knows. I think this is a big deal. I don't know about you, but I have had to come to the understanding in my following Jesus that I have to believe because of what I know, not what I'm seeing. Not what I'm seeing. I've seen... Family members die. I've seen people get sick. I've prayed for people and they haven't gotten well. I've seen all kinds of stuff. And we have seen some great things as well. But do you believe because of what you see? If you do, then you'll have to keep seeing. They'll have to keep happening. Or do you believe because of what you know? When you have to say in the midst of a serious illness or in the midst of a setback or in the midst of financial trouble, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed to Him. I know. I haven't seen it. I don't see it. It doesn't look like it's happening to me. But I know it. Does that make sense? Now here's where I may get in trouble. Um, This tension, this tension here. When it says this, that Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to others because he knew all men. Well, this is a crazy idea, but think about it. 
Did Jesus know what was in human beings? Because he knew what it was that they were facing because he was human. You know, this is the real struggle in theology that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Do you think Jesus ever struggled with some of the things those people were struggling with? Do you think Jesus knows what's in human beings because he has struggled with it himself? Think of, Now, I know that's a crazy idea, except I think there's a scriptural basis for that. That Jesus knows what people are struggling with here because he has struggled with it himself. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. I mean, I, I think we got, you know, Jesus... Boy, this is crazy. This notion that Jesus will not trust Himself because He knows what human beings are like because He Himself has experienced the draw, the drag, the temptation, the struggle, the strain himself. I believe that. I, I mean, oh, you know, now I know that. So, oh, what a Savior. <laughs> to have a Savior that says, I know what it is to be human. I know what it's like to be struggling. I know what the issues are. So here's the question. Is our faith in what we see Blessings, health, stuff like that? Or is our faith in what we know? Now, you know what? When I was 25, that answer was real easy to me. It's what the Bible says. I don't know if you've had this happen, but I've had some of the certainty knocked out of me in my life. Yeah. (laughs) I've had some of the certainty knocked out of me. And there are times when I have to say, My faith cannot be in what I'm seeing. It can't be. Because everything I am seeing is contradicting everything I say I believe. Can I get an amen or an oh me on that? that, Has that happened to you yet? If you hadn't lived very long, or or you're not conscious. (laughs) My faith in what I know gets hammered. I told someone the other day, I I have struggled in the last three years more than I ever have in praying about people getting healed. It's it's been the hardest thing I've gone through. I talked to a guy in Washington, D.C. about it. I see people get healed all the time. I nearly slapped him. (laughs) In Jesus' name, of course, you know. You made me mad. But you know, if, if your faith and mine is in what we see, oh my. You're headed for a disaster. My faith is in who I know. My faith is in who I, not what I know, who I know. That He is God and I'm not. Where's your faith? Is it there? Now, I I promise I'll let you go in one minute. I know y'all got to get to the venue. When we come back after Easter, we're going to work through John chapter 3. And, uh, This is probably the most famous passage of Scripture in all the Bible. You know, Nicodemus, the reason I think these are connected is some commentators put them together because there was a man named, the Pharisees named Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, 
We know that you've come from God, for no one can do the signs. You see that word again? That word showed up in verse 18. That word showed up in 23. And he says, we know, we know you're from God. Nobody can do what you're doing. And, and Nicodemus becomes, in my judgment, a conversation that crystallizes, crystallizes the nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'll give you, you've heard me say this, but we're going to come back and just unpack it as this. You see, Nicodemus thought that what he needed was some more rules. He's a Pharisee. And Jesus said, what you need is life. Remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And Nicodemus' need is not more religion or more willpower or more effort. This is what he can't get when Jesus says, you have to be born from above. We're going to unpack that because that will become the central conversation of Jesus explaining His own mission and goal and the greatest matter, our need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, these are thoughts and ideas that we need to wrestle with. They're not easy. They're not just simple. But I pray that as we see You in Your conversations with religious leaders and with everyday people and all these matters that we can get some sense of what does it mean to follow you and be consistent with who you are. I pray, Jesus, you'll help me. I pray you'll help us all to listen carefully to these conversations that you've had, to the enriching of our lives and the developing of your great kingdom. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. See you in two weeks.